Welcome to the Unpolished MBA podcast. On this podcast, we have conversations with tech startup founders and entrepreneurs and traditional corporate MBAs. Many say that startups equal the unpolished MBA because those without the formal business education are scrappy and do many things untraditionally to achieve business success. But anyone who has built a business from an idea can attest to the fact that the experience is another level MBA and there's nothing quite like it. The candid conversation shared here is helpful to both sides of the fence. One is not better than the other, just different. Let's jump in. Hi, I'm your host, Monique Mills. In my work, I get to have great conversations with a lot of smart and interesting people. Some are tech startup founders and entrepreneurs, and others are corporate employees. Here, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Karen Hunter, an innovation expert with experience in corporate, but also as a consultant for global brands like Coca-Cola, Kraft, Sara Lee, and even Kimberly Clark. Now she shares some great wisdom about innovation that applies to both corporations and startups. And you'll never believe what sparked her to pursue her MBA. Now listen in as she shares her story with us. Loved the idea of seeing an idea, a concept that had a real user need come to life through execution. And that was a lot of fun. Mm Um, the, the challenge with the innovation in general is that it is a very fluid role within a lot of corporations. And so what happened with me was my department, which was packaging innovation, got eliminated and they brought all that work into the brand teams. And so I ended up going to Deloitte and I did some process innovation at Deloitte. and actually got my first global role with Sara Lee in the coffee and tea division. And the interesting thing is that Sara Lee, North America is a satellite office. The headquarters for Sara Lee Coffee and Tea was in the Netherlands. And so we were a a region office, basically. But it was my first experience in really understanding the cultural implications of working in innovation across different types of perspectives. Um, Because when I think about North America innovation, it's, it's very focused on a North America point of view, when you get outside of North America, all of the cultural references shift and change. Right. And so really becoming empathetic and trying to understand what is it about uh, this particular innovation that's going to be meaningful in this particular market um, is something that I um, I had to learn. I didn't Mm -hmm. really know how to approach it. Mm -hmm. Um, So really thinking about the, the elements of empathy that you have to bring into those relationships. You mentioned that you were corporate, but you're an entrepreneur now. So tell me a little bit about that transition and what type of entrepreneurship journey are you on right now? So I, some of it is deliberate and some of it is, um, is circumstantial. I first went out on my own in 2015 because I had this, I was at Kimberly Clark Professional. I was heading up global design for their B2B business. And it was an amazing organization. I had a great team. I loved the people I worked with, but I was not, um, I wasn't heading up innovation. 
and I wasn't as deeply involved in innovation as I, as I wanted to be. And someone who I knew at Coke, and this is the power of networking. Oh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> reached out to me sort of just out of the blue and said, Coke is redeveloping their innovation process. They need to um, create an innovation tool and they need someone to help develop and all the training materials and run the training for all the global teams. And so that scratched three major itches for me. One is um, getting into innovation process. The other is mentoring and coaching. And the third, quite frankly, is global travel and, and cultural exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and, but what Coke wanted was someone to do it as a LLC, as an independent. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't hiring it on as a role. So I took a, a leap. I took a leap of faith and said, I want to do this and I want to build up my practice as an innovation process expert on a global basis. So in this part right here, I actually asked Karen what it's been like being a woman in corporate and having opportunities given to her because she's a woman or not given to her because of it. And just to see what her experience has been. And then she also introduces the concept of six degrees of opportunity. So keep listening. I consider myself a a rabid feminist, but I've also never felt like I had any doors that were open to me because of a woman or doors closed to me because I was a woman. Yeah. Um, and, and that may just be because of who I am. I'm not particularly a shrinking violet. I'm pretty, uh, pretty straightforward in, in everything that I do. Um, and I'm, I'm a little fearless. I really have no, no fear of reaching out to people on LinkedIn or through my network mm-hmm. and say, Hey, can I get 30 minutes to chat with you and just um, understand more about what you're doing? Um, and I'm a strong believer in what I call six degrees of opportunity. Hmm. Um, Can you explain that? (laughs) So I, I might have this discussion today with you and then a couple of weeks from now, you and I might reconnect and you say, Hey, you know, and I know this person that would be interesting for you to talk to. And I might talk to that person and that person might link me to someone else. And then suddenly something comes out of that, whether it's a business opportunity or an opportunity for me to mentor someone, Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, don't think of, I don't think in terms of every relationship is transactional. I think of yeah. every relationship as, um, as a way to, to build up my network in total. Mm-hmm. I'd have to agree with that, certainly. Um, it's, it's funny because with social media, it has kind of built up some of those people that are very transactional. It feeds right into it. And then for others, I would say I fall into the same category as you is it actually has allowed me to build relationships with people that I wouldn't normally have access to and, you know, build relationships. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, and I'm one of these people, I feel like when someone immediately jumps into a relationship with me for, to try to sell me something, particularly if I'm not ready to be sold, Mm-hmm. Um, it's a turnoff and I don't necessarily want to talk to that person again. Agreed. Um, but, <laughs> but if I, ha- if I show genuine interest in someone else or like this morning, I read this amazing article on strategy and um, strategy and business and I reposted on LinkedIn. I didn't know the author, but I cited him and just doing those sorts of things because I respect what the person had to say. I wanted to recognize him for as the author 
and potentially I could make a connection with him because he's a kindred spirit and I might learn something from him in the future. And that's, that's my mindset. And then that might lead to an opportunity. It might not, but it's, it still enhances my network. In this next part, we discuss how the letters behind your name, aka certifications or degrees, um, can be important, um, and then other times, not so much. And so while we keep seeing more in the media about it not mattering as much and companies don't care, we're equally seeing just as much that being requested before giving someone an opportunity. Keep listening. On the professional side, you're seeing more and more companies looking for specific certifications, whether it's PMP or Agile or Scrum, and they want people who have who've shown that they're willing to go and do the work to get certified. Um, and it's it's interesting because I think there are two very very distinct camps. I agree. Some, pe- some people think oh yeah, you absolutely have to have it. It shows that you're willing to commit to it. And some people think it's just a bunch of hooey um, and that it's letters after your name, but it doesn't necessarily make you any better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the premise of this podcast. <laughs> um, so, so having been, so the whole premise is people, I will get messages through LinkedIn all the time. Oh, you're a PMP. I'm thinking about getting my PMP. Like, what do you think? I'm like, Hey, whatever works for you. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to get mine. It was just something I challenged myself to do, but honestly, I, I was doing project management many, many years, at least probably a decade before I even did the PMP. Um, and I don't think you needed to, 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 to be a good project manager. So then I start getting a question about MBA from so many people. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, they see you in the startup round. They see you as an entrepreneur and having corporate and all of that. And it's, a, it's the same question. I'm like, I don't believe, having been on both sides, I don't believe that you need that to be an excellent entrepreneur. And just because you have an MBA doesn't mean you will be a good one. <laughs> so I 100% agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll give you, there's actually a story around why I, I got my MBA. I have, a, I have an undergrad in English and I was a, um, in graphic design for the first 10 years of my career. Wow. Um, and so didn't really even think about going back to, to school. And then I got a job with Pepsi. Um, in their graphics group, in their packaging graphics group, and I met people in the packaging innovation team, and mm-hmm. they ended up having, I just, I was fascinated by the work that they were doing. The insight work, the, the physical work around packaging was, was just absolutely thrilling to me. Mm-hmm. And they ended up having a role that was open, and I interviewed for it, and that I didn't get the role, but the hiring manager was kind enough to come back to me and say, I, um, I really liked what you had to say, but we gave it to someone who had an MBA, who had that financial acumen and, the, and that background. Wow. And I, and I said to myself, I can fix that situation. So, oh um, man. So wow. it, was, it was a real desire to, um, to not put up any barriers for mm-hmm. myself on the corporate side. Mm-hmm. And so I, within weeks I had taken the GMAT, I was accepted at the University of Connecticut and cause I was living up there at that point. And then I came down here and went to uh, went to school at Robinson College of Business through Georgia State, mm-hmm. um, and uh, was working full time at Coke and, and working on my MBA at the same time. 
the beauty for me was everything I was learning in my MBA classes, I was going back to Coke and applying on a regular basis. So I was getting to practice at the same time I was studying. Um, now, that being said, that practice would have still been in my repertoire. So I still would have learned the tools, but I was learning a lot of the theory behind it yeah. as I went. For me yeah. personally, I love learning. Um, mm -hmm. I've taken tons of classes just because I'm a, I'm a school nerd. Um, <laughs> and I, I feel like I can never, I would never be able, I can never re replace being able to say I have an MBA. When I was in grad school, this is what I learned. Um, so, but it is a, I do think it's a very personal decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, I had a conversation with someone just last week who was, who was saying, I'm not sure I want to go get an MBA. And I said, well, in your current role, can you create, what would you want to learn from an MBA and then use your job to help you learn those things that you might um, normally pick up within an MBA? Mm -hmm. um, and corporations often give you those opportunities because you do have that broader experience and probably opportunities to take classes that you wouldn't as a, as an individual. Yeah, that's so, that's true. You know, I, I, I have a network of people who work for the big companies like you have. Um, and I work for Siemens government mm -hmm. and all those things. And I, and I totally, um, believe that certain companies do invest in their people like that. And then others, um, they would like for you to have it, but they're not willing to pay for it. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I was telling uh, one of our uh, recent guests um, that when I did my MBA at Georgia Tech, um, all of us that was in my class, in my cohort, um, we all paid for our degrees. Nobody's company paid for it. Wow. And they said um, that companies just don't pay for it anymore. Um, you know, at the school, mm -hmm. at the, at the college, it was like, yeah, companies, we used to be packed, you know, um, as far as like, um, our recruiting efforts, it was like, we, you know, they still turn people down, of course, but still it was like, it was, it was easier to get people in because companies were paying for it. And they, they stopped doing that back, um, when the housing crash happened back mm -hmm. in 2008. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, it's an unfortunate thing because it, it's a, it's a big financial barrier. Huge. Yeah, it's um, huge. Yeah. I, I don't know that I would have been able to do it if, if um, Coca-Cola hadn't paid for my MBA. And I feel incredibly grateful and blessed that I was, I had my entire MBA paid for and had a lot of support from my leadership team at the time to go and actually do the work. Um, oh, that is awesome. Yeah. That is so really I, awesome. I think that's a, that's a really important conversation to have with your management team to say, you know, are you going to support me that I need to leave at five o'clock so that I can get to class or that I can do my homework? Because, um, you know, we're all working lots of hours these days and mm -hmm. it can be very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, um, you know, we, we were kind of talking about different pivots you've made in your career. And now you're at a, another pivot from uh, what you were doing pre-COVID, right? To what you're mm -hmm. doing now. So what's, tell me a little bit about your, your current entity. So um, I'll give, tell you a little bit about the start of my innovation career, like I mentioned, was in, uh, was in project management and process. So very much about the giant 
um, Microsoft project timelines and very structured ways of doing things. Over time and through the exposure of the corporations that I've had, both either directly working for corporations or working um, as a consultant to corporations, my current perspective is that innovation is driven by a series of questions and answers that organizations need to ask in order to make sure they're working on the right things. Mm -hmm. um, so my current entity, um, Whetstone, is focused on the principles, practices, and processes of innovation that meld with, with culture in order to um, effectively build an innovation practice. Um, okay. So, I, so I've gone from this, uh, this hyper-structured, everything has to be checked off approach to a fluid approach that is based on the particular culture and what they want to achieve with innovation and how, does, how do all of the elements of structure and governance come together in, able, in order to enable that organization to be as effective as they can be. Mm -hmm. And who would be your ideal clients for this? So from a, an, a, at a broad scale, it would be either a mid-sized company that doesn't, doesn't have a really good innovation process in place or an enterprise, a larger company that maybe has an, an innovation process in place, but they've sort of lost their way or it's not working as effectively as they like. And so they need someone to come in and run diagnostics and, and really help them think about where do we need to be? Where do we need to be leaning in and doing better in order to get what we want out of our innovation work? Yeah. Wow. So one of the things you mentioned um, earlier in our conversation was about embracing failure and using that as a way to learn in corporate mm -hmm. and you know innovation teams. So do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that for the audience? Yeah. So I um, I will say um, I've got. Some, some personal experiences there. Um, so uh, coming, into, uh, coming into a company like Sara Lee, Sara Lee Coffee and Tea did not have any kind of innovation process put together. And so I was trying to help put some of that structure in place and was doing it in the sort of the Deloitte way. Mm -hmm. It was very structured and not really paying attention to what does that culture look like? And what does it mean to embed an innovation process into an organization if you don't have leadership buy-in? Mm -hmm. um, so I was, I was sort of a one-man band and it was really not successful at all because I thought surely everyone understands that this process is going to be great. And I didn't have the, the language and I, I didn't have the, the cultural awareness at that time to say, you know what, I need to understand what the culture is about first and then adapt to think about what kind of process is gonna help this, organi this particular organization. Um, so it was a big learning for me. Oh, wow, then, very, very well said about the cultural part. I mean, you've mentioned that a few times in this conversation and throughout your expansive career, it sounds like you've had many instances of having to address that or make it a, a large consideration before moving forward in your role. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that you can't simply, um, I, any organization has its own DNA and mm -hmm. um, it, it's a, it's a unique entity and organism 
in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And any, any innovator who comes in and says, I have this process and I know it's going to work within this culture is being a bit blind to all of the other dynamics that need to go into what does innovation look like in this particular organization. Um, and, that's a, and that's a bit of the, the test and learn because sometimes organizations need to, sometimes they need to trial processes mm-hmm. and, and pivot off those processes um, yeah. because sometimes they don't, they work in theory, but then when they actually get out wild and into the field, um, people are too busy or they're not connected enough um, or it's just too laborious and you have to figure out what is the right approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're a consultant coming from the outside in, I'm guessing far out there um, and, you know, regulatory things and all that, and which because of the MBA, I think about all of the different forces involved with bringing certain things to the market. And so working with PhDs and doctors and engineers of all kinds, they come up with, I mean, some incredible things, but the part that's missing. So they have the subject matter expertise. But the part that's missing is that superpower over there, right? The, the marketing and sales part. And so I actually do spend a lot of time explaining to founders how they need that. They need that counterpart because otherwise the idea, the business, the product won't go anywhere. That's honestly the, that's really hard to be a good entrepreneur and not have a pretty good sense of marketing, mm-hmm. right? Marketing is kind of like, I feel like the essence of marketing actually is entrepreneurship. Yeah, the ability of a good marketer to discern a market or what the market needs to hear in order to buy is essentially entrepreneurship. That's how I even started studying. I did. I didn't study entrepreneurship in school, but I did start buying all the like, like four steps of epiphany, mm-hmm. startup manual, like all those kinds mm-hmm. of books because I was like, wait, there's something missing from marketing books, and then I I found it in entrepreneurship books because that's where they really started talking about finding the market, product market fit, right? Yeah, because there's some products that will never be sold no matter how good the marketing is because they never had a product market fit, That's right. which is always a marketer's dilemma. You're like, well, like, what do I do? How do I convince my boss that maybe we should just scrape the whole product? Because maybe, maybe it's me, but maybe the product, maybe we never had a fit on this product. Right. Mm-hmm. Hard conversations. <laughs> it is, especially if they're not aware of the startup foundational principles. Like um, I had the pleasure of meeting Steve Blank and having dinner at his house. Um, in December. And, and then we had another talk, um, you know, afterward for a zoom meeting. And I literally had to tell him because I also teach a class in entrepreneurship, um, at a university. And I told him, and I use his course, his principles as the foundation. I told him, I said, listen, you have literally changed lives, your philosophies, your explanation for things and access to pretty much anything he's ever done is free. Yeah. Online. It's huge. I'm like, you have changed entire industries, lives, families. He's impacted the world. It's sad that he didn't get more credit for it. Right. You and I know his name, but most people are like, who? Even in the startup world, they're like, who? And I'm like, (laughs) that's the whole reason. Like, (laughs) I'm like, that's the whole reason why you're being taught these things from accelerators and stuff. He even had um, at the meeting, he had um, Alex Osterwalder um, there who created the business model canvas. And, um, you know, they have, of course, other lines of books and things that come out to help people. And I Mm -hmm. honestly think the MBA programs need to replace 
the books that they're using and start using <laughs> using um, yeah. these books as the foundation because yeah. you don't have to be a startup to utilize the principles. For sure, I think some some a lot of MBA programs are using those books now. Mm-hmm. I worked uh, uh, a family member of mine went through CSU's MBA and he was going through um, the business business canvas model and, mm-hmm. and through, um, they didn't use Steve Blank's book. They used, uh, Eric Rise's book. Um, oh, the lean, lean startup. startup. Yeah. Yeah. But, and he, he was having, I guess it was a class on entrepreneurship within his MBA, but he was having to pump out business models, lots of business models as part of his, his classwork. I didn't in my, my program, it was more focused on IT and project management, oh, um, okay. Okay. which for me was really helpful, but Mm-hmm. Um, I think some programs are starting to improve their curriculum and pull things out. The hard part about MBAs and businesses and, and why I think this is part of the reason why people knock them so much is because they're having to actually pull from well-researched and proven tactics and models, right? But a lot of stuff that's working now won't, like once it's proven and statistically verified, it won't be working anymore, that's right? right? So that's why it's kind of like, it's good some but some some subjects lend lend themselves better to formal education like finance mm-hmm. like accounting those things aren't changing they've been around all a long time right right mm-hmm. like cash um cash flow statements are still considered new even though they've been around for 30 years now right because <laughs> oh <my laughs> accounting's been around so long it's a tried and true discipline it's mm-hmm. it's verified it's it's uh, but marketing's changing so much so when i was reading marketing textbooks and it was talking about twitter i'm like no, yeah. no, this is out of date. And that's why people kind of like poo poo degrees, but they're so still they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That's, that's, right. that's a shame. That's right. I mean, look at, you know, having Instagram stories now, having reels, uh, I'm sorry, LinkedIn stories, having reels on Instagram, which is basically TikTok. <laughs> yeah. It's TikTok on Instagram now. Um, I remember when Snapchat was you know, a solitary thing. And then Instagram took on the features and then Facebook took on the features. Um, and so it's all, it's all changing very fast, but I would say marketing is changing extremely fast with the, the foundational principles of business, accounting, finance, things like you said, that's not, that's not going anywhere. No, that's why it's still worth it. That's right. It's all, you got to constantly be learning when you're in marketing. So do you think you'll ever start your own startup and be the CEO of your own startup? Mm, I think about it, but I wrestle with it. Why? Honestly, I, I kind of, I'm like, I don't know if I want to be number one. I'm like, being number two sounds really good because I know that the pressure of number one, my boss says this all the time. I report to the CEO and he's like, I love having the flexibility. I'm like, dude, you have the least amount of flexibility of anybody on this team. <laughs> people's lives and livelihoods depend on you. Mm-hmm. You can't just go like AWOL for, you just can't disappear for a month unless you like plan it ahead of time or something or just take off the day because people are depending on you to show up and provide the lead, leadership and guidance for you to lead this company. I'm like, I don't know if I want that weight. I mean, it is, I guess it is attractive to do the Tim Ferriss thing to kind of have like your own little business model and do the four hour work thing. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm too, I don't know. I Even that sounds like not as much fun because I'm want to keep continue working on this. I love marketing. I love what I do so much that I just kind of like showing up to work. Mm-hmm. I like working for Sweetfish Media because it's one, my, the CEO is really marketing oriented, but still gives me the freedom to do what the marketing stuff I know how to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's media focused as a podcasting agency. 
we can, we're focused on producing content in the way that most marketing departments should be operating this day. We're trying to champion and pioneer and essentially be a media driven marketing company. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm excited about. So I'm more excited about working with the Sweetfish media team Mm -hmm. as as part of a team than I am just kind of going on my own solo adventure. Um, But you never know. Like, I mean, I started my whole career wanting to be a fine artist and it pivoted multiple times and now I'm in love with marketing. So I'm like, it could change again. So right now I'm really loving being a marketer. Well, that's it. I would definitely have to agree with Dan that the combination of innovation and marketing is unmatched. It's definitely the combination you need to be successful in business. He mentioned that an MBA can tie it all together for those that are seeking to move into leadership. And that's when he'll usually recommend it to some of his peers. You know, it helps to be able to work cross-functionally across an organization to be most effective. I also agree with him when he mentioned that everyone should experience a startup. There is nothing like it. The ups, the downs, all of it is just a very exciting journey where you'll learn so much. You know, he mentioned that entrepreneurship is a skill that could be taught and you don't have to be the next Mark Zuckerberg to do well as an entrepreneur. There's so much opportunity out here. It doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur or employee, as long as you're enjoying what you do every day. Besides, you can always pursue entrepreneurship at any point. There's so many tidbits of information in this episode, and so I really hope you enjoyed it. The Unpolished MBA conversation continues, and you can be a part of it by going to unpolishedmba.com. Thank you for listening.